All right, well, if you would, open your Bibles uh, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 19 and 22, what we're going to look at here today. And in your pew Bible, it's on page 977. Or if you like, you can just look at it, print it in your bulletin. So it's uh, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. You know, our passage begins with a so then. So thens speak of what? They speak of consequence or result. And because of this circumstance, so then, this consequence. For example, uh, you stayed up late watching the Olympics. So then you will need an extra cup of coffee in the morning. So thens in the Bible can be life-changing and informative. And today's so then is based on something before it, right? It's the result of something. Uh, What we've seen here over the last few weeks is this, is that the gospel brings about a wonderful news for those who have received it. Remember what we've seen so far. Those who were once spiritually dead have now been made alive in Christ Jesus. And those deserving God's wrath have now been made recipients of God's mercy and God's grace. We were once separated and alienated from God and his people, but now we have been brought near. There was once two people, Jew and Gentile, but now in Christ, God has made two into one. God has therefore brought uh, about a, a new humanity upon the earth, one that enjoys intimacy with each other and with, with him. Now, in our passage, it's a short passage, Paul gives us three images that will help us to more clearly see and understand this new humanity that God is making us to be. As we read through, see if you can pick out what they are, okay? Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his ways, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good and gracious and kind and loving. We are forever dependent upon your gracious condescension of coming down and of giving us your word that we may, may know you rightly, at least as rightly as human beings can. Uh, Our thoughts are often not your thoughts. Our ways are not your ways. And yet, in your word, we see um, who we are to be. We thank you for this passage that shows us these images of who you are making us to be as a a new humanity um, created in Christ Jesus. Um, We devote this time to you. We pray that you would open our eyes afresh to these words. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'm afraid I must have a misguided view of curling. I can't for the life of me understand why curling is, uh, is an Olympic sport. Perhaps I'm prejudiced or ignorant or both. Perhaps I, I'm prejudiced because, you know, I like snowboarding 
or alpine skiing, even figure skating, ice dancing, anything but curling. Perhaps I'm a little bit ignorant as well. You know, I don't understand why they got one shoe that seems to slide well and one that doesn't. I don't understand. I don't understand why all the yelling, you know, what's going on? I don't know. I think what I need is perhaps someone from the curling community, if you know anybody, uh, send them my way. I think I need somebody to sit down with me and explain really what's going on, why it is such a magnificent sport and why my misgivings should be laid aside. You know, I think like curling, many people have misguided understandings of, of the church. Non-Christians, and I'm certain there's perhaps a few of you here, non-Christians have this view of uh, the church as a group of hypocritical, judgmental people or of a group of unintellectual, emotionally unhealthy, weak people or, or both. That's often the picture people outside the church have. And yet we're part of the church, right? I'm assuming most of us here belong to Christ and we're part of the church. And even we can have misgivings and misunderstandings and inadequate understandings of the local church. I think there's three things that we can see. As Stephen Cole writes, he says, for most Christians, most Christians think in terms of attending church, not being the church. For them, church is a nice thing to attend on Sunday if they don't have anything else to do and and if they aren't out too late the night before. So they attend church much as they attend the theater. They hope that the program will be enjoyable and make them feel good. They greet a few people and other attenders and then go home quickly. But meanwhile, they have no concept of being built together with other saints in the household of God, the, the temple where God dwells in human hearts. Second reason why I think many Christians have an inadequate or misguided view of the church is that, is they, is that they choose the, the church as spiritual consumers. People will shop around for the church that best meets their felt needs. And don't get me wrong, all people have felt needs, and the gospel does address our, our felt needs, but that isn't to be the, the primary um, condition by which we look for a church. Chuck Colson, who passed away a few years ago in his book Breakpoint, told about some friends of his that started attending a unity church. And here's the dialogue from his book. Colson exclaimed, what? You're a Christian and unity is a cult. Really? The man looked surprised. Of course it is, Colson explained. They don't believe in the resurrection or even in one true God. Then the man's wife spoke up. Oh, but we love it there. We always come away from the service feeling much better. Colson comments, feeling better? Is that what church is all about? For many people, unfortunately, the answer is yes. And the third line of evidence comes from Joshua Harris. He wrote the book, Stop Dating the Church. And uh, he points out that most Christians date the church. They're not committed to the church. His profile of a church dater is this. First, he is me-centered. He goes for what he can get. Second, he is independent. He doesn't want to commit himself or get too involved, especially with people. Often this is because the church dater got burned in a previous church. Perhaps some of you have experienced that. Third, he tends to be critical of the church. This is where the consumer mindset 
kicks in. The church dater is always looking for the best product at the best price, so he is fickle, always hunting for a better deal. Paul's words to this church in Ephesus help us to overcome our misguided views of the local church. Paul wants us to see and understand how much God treasures his church. So Paul says, he says, so then. His so then leads to three images wherein if we could just understand them and gather them in and make them a part of our understanding of who God is and who we are, they would would dramatically change us into this new humanity that God is calling us to. We see there's three things, these three images. Paul says, so then you are. Uh, First, we are fellow citizens in God's kingdom. Second, we are members of God's family. And third, we are part of God's holy temple. We'll look at those things here this morning. First, we are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. You know, in the Old Testament, the the Jewish nation was the, the people of God. It was the nation. But now, with the coming of Christ, what has happened is God's people have become transnational. Uh, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe are, are part of God's church. And we are fellow citizens of the, of the kingdom. Consider the preaching of John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist led the way for Jesus and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's saying the king's on his way. Come on, nation, be ready for the king. He's coming. Jesus arrived and began his earthly ministry. In the words of Mark, um, he recounts these words. He says, And after John, John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, that's the good news, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is here, it's come, and it's coming in its fullness uh, someday in the future. And, and God, by his grace, is, uh, makes people kingdom members, citizens, fellow citizens of, of the kingdom. Uh, what is the kingdom? It, by the way, this summer, our, our, our grace camp uh, theme is, is the kingdom. So it's good for us to understand what the kingdom is. John Stott says simply, the kingdom of God is where God rules, right? <laughs> kind of makes sense. And there's a couple areas. On, on the one hand, God rules over all of life, over all of the earth. Uh, though the world is full of chaos and conflict, the, the people who belong to the kingdom are, are, are put at rest because we belong to the kingdom. That's why Jesus said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but do not be alarmed. <laughs> Because we're members of God's kingdom, his power and his reign. On the other hand, though, the kingdom of, of God is, uh, also rules in the individual's hearts and in, in minds. Elsewhere, Paul wrote about this kingdom reality that if you are in Christ, that you experience as a, as a believer. He, he says that um, the internal aspects of the kingdom are this, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Christian, you've experienced this, right? You've experienced God's kingdom rule and reign in your life as you experience His righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Everywhere God is at work, this is what He brings about. His rule and reign on the earth brings this reality to you as His people. 
Paul didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about this kingdom picture here in Ephesians. In fact, he doesn't even use the, the word kingdom, does he? But that's what he means by fellow citizens, right? So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. He said, at one time you were on the wrong side of the castle wall, but now you've been brought in into God's rule, into his reign. No longer are you, are you cut off from God's people and his promises, but you are now participants in them. And this is true of you. If you are in Christ, you are fellow citizens with the saints. And then we also, with the writer of the Hebrews, rejoice. And, and remember where he wrote, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That's a powerful image to, to know that we are fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. With the set-apart ones. You know, a saint, let me remind you, a saint isn't like the really, really good Christians, right? If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are a saint. The Greek word is hagios. It means either holy in an adjectival use, or it, or it means in, in the noun form, it means um, saint. Someone who's been set apart by God. Set apart for him, for his purposes. Made, made holy. You are a saint. And the church is made up of fellow saints, fellow citizens. Do you notice how he said fellow citizens? He just didn't say citizens. You are citizens. But he said fellow citizens. Why would he do that? To emphasize the, the unity, the, the relational aspects of being God's people. We are fellow citizens uh, with the saints. You know, good citizens look out for their fellow citizens. They stop when they see someone changing a flat tire. They run into the burning house to rescue somebody. They'll even run for office if they feel like they have the gifts to make their community a better place to live. How much more so you and me? We are fellow citizens of the kingdom. How much more so are we to, to look out for each other, to care for each other, to not be so inwardly focused, but rather to be focused on the needs and concerns of fellow members of God's kingdom. So we're fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We're also, we're now members of God's household or family. You know, it's good to be a part of the kingdom, but God's household? That's an even greater degree of, of, of intimacy, right? To, to belong to, to someone's family, it, it, it implies, a, it implies a tight bonds, right? Or at least it should be. I don't know what your family situation is. Perhaps you come from a wonderful family, a, full of a lot of great memories, and you're continuing to build great memories, a, a lot of encouragement and joy and, and happiness. If that's you, you're truly blessed. I also know perhaps many of you maybe come from difficult home situations. Perhaps, uh, you know, there's animosity between you and a sibling or, or a parent. Or there's always, maybe you've never even known your mother or father. Maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you've not experienced a, a warm, inviting family situation. But the, the reality is, here, is this. It, it matters not your family background. Because in the gospel, in Christ Jesus, we are brought into God's family. That's what Paul is saying here, that we are members of the household of, of God. 
You know, some people will say, well, everybody who's born is, is part of God's family, right? We're all the family of God all around the world, every single human being that's born. And I kind of get that. I get the sense of that. I mean, we truly are. We're, God has this imprint upon every human being. We are made in his image. So his family mark is upon us. But just because you're born in this world doesn't mean you're part of God's family. This letter to the Ephesians, we see it here, right? What did, what did he call these uh, Ephesians in this letter? He says, at one point, you were by nature children of, of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And our, and our passage here says you were once strangers and aliens, right? So uh, let's not come to that conclusion that just because you're born, you're part of God's family. But what God does for us in Christ Jesus is he brings us into his family. Collectively, we are the family of God. Now, how does a person become a part of a family? Well, you're born into it or you're adopted into it, right? And the Bible uses both of these images and in in this letter to the Ephesians is used them as well. A Christian, on the one hand, is someone who has experienced new birth or, or rebirth. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus says, Nicodemus, before you can even see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Peter, in, in his first letter, said, writing about to Christians, he says, you have been born anew, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. If you're a Christian, you have this experienced this new birth. You've been reborn into God's family. But you, the other image is that of adoption. We've been adopted into God's family. You, you remember early in chapter 1, verse 5, we read, In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. When God brought you into his family, he didn't do so as a foster child to be kicked out or moved on someday if you don't perform well or live up to his standards. No, he adopted you into his family. In Roman law, if you adopted a child, it was irrevocable. So too with God's adoption of you. It's irrevocable. He has chosen to lavish his love upon you. You are his child. You are part of his family. This household language is meant to to comfort us, to to make us secure in our identity and and knowing who, who we are. We don't have a heavenly father who's abusive and flies off the handle for no apparent reason. No, we have a a heavenly father who's kind and gracious, loving, yes, firm and uh, with holy standards, but yet patient and, and gracious to his children. You know, Jesus wanted to make sure we understood this about God. And he gives us the 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 the. The story of the, of the prodigal son. You remember the story. The, the son says, forget you, dad, the youngest son. And he says, give me my inheritance. His dad was still alive. Give me my inheritance. And he leaves and he, he goes and he parties and hangs out with prostitutes. And he squanders all of his money. And he finds himself slopping the hogs, thinking and remembering just how wonderful his father's servants had it in the father's household. And so he, he went home. And on the way home, he's coming up with ways in which to apologize and ask for forgiveness. But he doesn't even get a chance to. Why? Because his father sees him from a distance, raises up his garments, rushes after the son, embraces him, puts on a signet ring, throws a huge giant feast. That's the picture of your father, heavenly father's love for you. 
Some of you here need reminding of that because you perhaps feel as if your relationship with your Heavenly Father is something that you've, you've disrupted by, with your poor behavior lately or something that you've done and you, you don't feel as if you can come to, to, to God anymore. You've got to work your way back into a relationship. You've got to come begging and pleading. The, the picture that we see in Scripture, though, is God is like this. He runs after his children when he sees them returning to him and embraces them. We are members of God's family. So we're no longer strangers and aliens. We're fellow citizens of God's kingdom. And we are fellow members of God's family. The last image we see is that of a holy temple. This is really a radical picture here. We are a temple in which God dwells. That was ludicrous in Jesus' day, in Paul's day. Every religion, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, they all had big temples where worship took place. And um, now, Paul is saying, no more of that. God dwells in you. We see it in the beginning of verse 20. Paul says, we're fellow citizens of the kingdoms and members of his family built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's a miraculous claim. If it's true, it should change us forever if we embrace that. First, we see the foundation. Foundations are important. You know, we just moved into a new house, but for seven years we lived in this rental home. And... It was a nice house. We liked it. We enjoyed it. It was good for us. People would say, though, hey, if it, would you ever consider buying it? This is a nice house. Like, surrounded by these pretty farmland and stuff. And I'd say, you know, no, I don't think I'd ever put an offer in. Something's wrong with the house. You should see its foundation. And it's true. When they built the house, they used like eight-foot forms and poured concrete in. But it's a ten-foot foundation. They finished it off with cinder blocks. When the rains come, it just leaks right on in the house. Foundation. It's, it's not good. And there's a room upstairs where, where it's crooked and it angles down. You can, it's just, it doesn't seem right. Something's wrong. The foundation is the most important part of the house. You don't get the foundation right. The rest of the house is, um, is in bad shape. Paul here is saying that there's a foundation to this temple. And, and what is he saying that foundation is? He's saying it's the apostles and the prophets. Uh, the apostles are the sent ones from, from Jesus. The prophets, he could be talking about Old Testament prophets, but most likely he's talking about um, people who worked alongside the apostles, who received divine revelation and passed it along through the apostles to the church, and it became part of Scripture for us. That's what Paul is getting at. He's not saying that we're built upon the personalities of the apostles and the prophets. What he's getting at is he's getting at we're built upon their teaching. We're, we're, we're being built upon Scripture. See, it's the Word of God that's the foundation for the church. If you, if you are part of the church, it's the very words of God that have given life to you and caused you to be a part of Christ's body. That's the foundation. Let me get to the cornerstone. Cornerstones are an important part of a, of a building, at least back then. We don't talk a whole lot about cornerstones today. In Jerusalem, the cornerstone at the temple, they, they were huge. They were massive. 
Armitage Robinson mentions that they, they unearthed one of these monoliths, a huge cornerstone. It measured 38 feet 9 inches in length. That's a big stone. A cornerstone is important for a, a couple of reasons. One, it's part of the foundation, and, and it's usually one of the larger stones in the foundation. It's, it's important in that regard. But also, all of the other foundation stones and the rest of the whole building was aligned with the cornerstone. It set the, set the angles for the entire building. If it wasn't set properly, the whole building would be uh, out of whack. I don't think that's a... That's not an architectural term, I don't think, but you know what I'm saying, right? We've got a few architects here. They're giving me that grimace. All right. Tell me what the word is after the service. But, you know, it's really, really important. The cornerstone is critical to the entire building. The chief cornerstone of this temple is, is what? Well, it's not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus Christ. Paul says that is Jesus Christ himself is holding the church together and growing us up. He is causing us to be aligned with each other and with his with his purposes. This tells us something this morning. Unless we as a church are constantly and continually aligning our lives with Christ. We will fall short. We will fail. Unless Christ is our cornerstone of all we do, our, our mission will not be met here on the east end of Long Island. Christ is to be the unshakable rock, the cornerstone upon which we look to. Individually, yes, and as his, as his people. You know, much of the world rejects Christ as the cornerstone you know, it didn't surprise Jesus when it happened. You know, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, on like the very last week of his life, came to Jesus and they'd shown that they were unfaithful. They weren't recognizing who Jesus is. And Jesus quoted from Psalm 118.22. And, um, and he said this, he said, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus knew his Bible. He knew Psalm 118, 22 was talking about him. There's a stone that the builders reject. It just doesn't look right. Something's wrong with it. It's not big and majestic in the way in which we're looking for a cornerstone. And they rejected it. But the Lord has taken this stone that the builders has rejected and made it the cornerstone. Jesus knew that was him. He knew what they were doing. He knew that he was, they were rejecting him. But it was part of the God's... He, he understood that that was, that that was part of his mission, was to be rejected by, even by the religious leaders of his day. You know, when we read the... we got Easter's coming up. I don't know if you know, we got uh, Ash Wednesday and a couple Wednesdays. Um, Easter's coming up. And... If you remember the accounts, at least in Matthew, of when Jesus enters into, into Jerusalem, you remember what, they, what, they, what the people were doing? Just the regular townspeople, they come out to, to greet Jesus and they, they, they shout out, Blessed is he who comes in the, in the name of the Lord. They didn't just make up those words. You know where they came from? 
Psalm 118. They were singing Psalm 118. The very psalm that says, the stone that the builders has rejected shall become the cornerstone. And if you know how the story goes, those who at the beginning of the week said, blessed is he, at the end of the week were saying what? Crucify him. Jesus wasn't the stone they were looking for. They were looking for a political savior or erudite prophet who could come and just pat them on the back and say everything's going to be okay. But a suffering servant, one who says you must trust in me, one who says I'm dying for your sins, you're a sinner, you need a savior. No, 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 no. We don't need that. And it's true today. Many, many people reject the stone. The one that God has used as the chief cornerstone. It's just a simple stone to most people. They look at Jesus and they go, he was a a nice man. He was a wise man. He gave us a lot of things that we can put in our lives and make our lives better. In other words, well, you're to take Jesus as a stone and bring him into your life. And maybe not your cornerstone, but... I'm going to have him part of my life. I'm going to maybe put him up there towards the roof line. You know, I got Jesus right here. He's a a wise teacher who tells me to turn the other cheek when I get angry. But no, Christ Christ must not be just any old stone in your life. Christ Christ is to be the the chief cornerstone. He's the one who has given his life so that you may have life. And he's the one to whom we're to look to, to, to align our very lives to. Please understand, he's gracious in this endeavor. It's not like Jesus is the cornerstone taskmaster yelling, get in line, line up with me. Come on now, you idiots. When is this temple ever going to look right? Jesus is kind and patient and, and gentle. He calls out to us, hey, come, put that stuff aside. Line up with my life. I hear you. I know what you're going through. Come back to me. Right. That's the picture that as Christians, Jesus is to, to be the one we always look to, to to align our lives to and to 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 grow. As you notice, we're being built up into this temple as we look towards Christ and hear his words of encouragement as we as he challenges us to be the people he's called us to be. We are being built up as his people, which brings us to our last point, which is the living stones. We are living stones if you are in Christ. Now, I know he doesn't say that in the passage, but that's what he's getting at, right? That's what he has in mind. We're being elsewhere. Paul, um, Peter writes that we are like living stones built into a spiritual house. Paul says we're being built together into a a dwelling place. I hope you see that, Christian, that you're a stone that's part of a structure. When Christ gives you his his mercy and grace and forgiveness and salvation, he just doesn't chuck you out into a field for you to do your own little thing as a stone. You know, you're a part of a big and beautiful temple that he's building up. James Montgomery Boyce gives us um, six points just to make application. They're really quick. So first he says, the first stone, oh, excuse me, first, the stones placed into this great structure are chosen and shaped for their position by God. It is his temple. He's the architect. 
It is not for us to determine where we will fit in or how. Second, the stones are placed into position, into relationship with Jesus Christ. They are attached to him. If they are not, they're not part of his building. Third, the stones are of different shapes and sizes, perhaps even different material, and they are employed for different functions. Some serve in one way, some in another. Fourth, the stones are linked to one another. From where they are placed, they cannot always see this. They cannot always even see the other stones. But they are part of one interlocking whole regardless. Fifth, the stones of the temple are chosen, shaped, and placed not to draw attention to themselves, but to contribute to a great building in which God dwells. And six, finally, the placing of each stone is only part of a long work begun thousands of years in the past and will continue until the end of the age when the Lord returns. Those are helpful words, right? To help us see what it means to be a living stone into the temple in which God is building. And, my friends, why does God put this temple together? Well, why is it that he's gone to these great links? Well, the text says so that he may dwell in us. Remember, Jesus said, where, where two or more gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. Now, the old temple was a physical structure that was the dwelling place of God. And, of course, God is a spirit, so he, he doesn't like literally dwell there. But what we see in the Old Testament was he, he sent what was called his Shekinah glory. And it came in the innermost part of the temple. Uh, God dwelled in there with this, this fire and the smoke. Of his, of his glory. The purpose of that was to show and remind his people that he dwells with them. Now, though, Paul, with this new temple, is saying it's not a material building, nor is it in a physical location, but rather it's a spiritual building, uh, and it's an international community. It's spread throughout the world. I like what John Stott says about this. He says, this is where God dwells. He is not tied to holy buildings, but to holy people, to his own society. To them, he has pledged himself as a solemn covenant. He lives in them individually and as a community. God is building up his people into a temple in which he dwells. How does he bring this about? At the end of verse 22, we see that in Christ we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the work of the third person of the Trinity who brings us to Christ and he brings us to each other and he lays each new believer upon this foundation that goes back thousands of years and he builds us up, he knits us together, he points us to Christ, he causes us to grow. You know, I think most Christians have an understanding that God dwells in them. By the Holy Spirit. I think most Christians have that understanding. But I think many Christians overlook the, the, the significance of we as the collected, collective body are together a temple in which God dwells. I think this should challenge us and, uh, and how we look at each other. It should challenge us when we seek spiritual highs in solitude. It, it should challenge us to see ourselves as, as God sees us and that we should strive to, to join together and look towards Christ together and live together. 
We began our time talking about how many people have misguided views concerning the church. Many people look at church as something they attend rather than uh, being the church. Many people shop for churches based on felt needs and what they can get out of it, how good they feel at the end of the end of the service. What am I? What am I to do? Is, is your past? How do I? How do I? How do I send you out of here? You know, there's a temptation in many pastors and many ways of preaching is to is to go for the uh, see I told you so now get to work approach. You know. See, I told you this is who the church is. See how important the church is to God. Now, now go on out there and, and make sure you go to every church event. You've got to do all this stuff now. Now, come on. I told you so. That's not the gospel approach. It's not Paul's approach. You know, when you look at this letter to the Ephesians, it's in two parts. Uh, part one is chapters one, two, and three. Part two is chapters four, five, and six. In parts one, two, and three, Paul lingers for a while to tell us what is true. It's then in verse four, five, six that he tells us what to do. And he will tell us what to do. But we need to wait till chapter four, verse one, where we hear Paul say, I therefore urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. For now, he wants us to linger on what is true. This is who you are as God's people. Don't get ahead of yourselves. You know, in, in like college level, even some high school level science classes, they, they have the lecture and then the lab, right? The lecture is where you, you got to, there's a lot of stuff you got to learn, right? Before you even turn on the Bunsen burner, right? You got you to, got some things to learn. But then after you learn these things, you bring them into the lab. And then in the lab, you learn them even more as you apply them all the more. Right now, we're in the lecture portion. Paul just wants us to linger in what is true about us. Remember early in the, in the letter, he, he says uh, he was praying that the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and a knowledge of him. And that we would, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may, may know the hope. We're still part of that, right? So my hope here today isn't to send you out with a bunch of things to do. I just want you to meditate on what is true, right? Paul has said that there's this phenomenal so then in Scripture. Because of this mercy you've received from God, because of this warm, accepting welcome into uh, the people of God, that there's a so then. So, so then you're... you're fellow citizens in God's kingdom. So then you've been made members of God's gracious, loving family. So then you, you're, you're now part of God's holy temple that God has built up and he's dwelling in. Maybe throughout the week we just meditate on that. We'll get to chapter 4 before long. And until then, let's, let us ponder what God has done for us in Christ as this new humanity he's created. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you allow us to linger over the truths of, of who we are. We're so tempted to rush into things that we need to do in order to be better Christians. I pray for, um, for us. I pray that we would truly have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we would see this magnificent work you've done for us. Uh, images aren't, don't do justice, but, but they do help. And we are... 
we are fellow citizens. You are ruling over and caring for us. We are fellow family members. You are our Heavenly Father. We are siblings who have experienced your welcome and your love and your adoption. And, and we, are, we, are, we are people who are, being, are living stones. We are being built into your holy temple. We thank you that you dwell in us. Encourage us in this very hour, we pray. Amen.